The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, I'm honored to welcome my guest, Dr. Lindley Dixon. She is the Associate Director of the Real Organic Project, which is a grassroots farmer-led movement created to distinguish soil-grown and pasture-raised products under the USDA's organic program. The project's mission is to grow people's understanding of foundational organic values and practices, such as crops grown in soil and livestock raised on pasture are fundamental to organic farming. The project is creating an add-on label to USDA's Certified Organic to provide more transparency on organic farming practices to consumers. Dr. Dixon owns a vegetable farm in Durango, Colorado, with her husband and daughter, and she distributes her produce through a CSA, which is a community-supported agriculture project, farm-to-school, and farmer's markets. Dr. Dixon holds a Ph.D. in plant pathology from the University of Florida, and in addition, she held a two-year postdoctorate with USDA's Systematic Botany and Mycology Laboratory, where she studied fungal plant pathogens from around the world. Her research involves studying the impact of farm biodiversity on plant disease levels and providing perspective on the various inputs required given different production practices. She is currently running the pilot program to certify farms for the Real Organic Project, and I love bringing farmers' voices to our listeners. So welcome, Dr. Dixon. Thank you so much, Melinda. It's wonderful to have the opportunity. Well, I'm really curious. You have an impressive background. You've got a PhD in plant pathology. You could have easily taken a job with a university doing research, having great health benefits, retirement benefits, but something led you to the farm. What was that? We as farmers often talk about the fact that it's kind of in us and that we were born with it. And I always knew that it was something that I wanted to do. And so how I got caught up in graduate school and postdoc research for a decade is just the fact that I absolutely love the biology behind farming. And because we don't have farmland in our family, it was such an overwhelming barrier to overcome. So I knew I needed to get some savings and also do that in a job that kept me interested. And so the opportunity to do research on organic farming systems presented itself And I knew that it was going to be a lot that I would have to overcome to get a farm started. So I went down that road for a while, always knowing that at some point I was going to make the leap and try to be a farmer because it was just something that was in me. Mm. And what led you to organic farming specifically? Uh, That's another thing that has always been in me. It didn't make any sense to spray the food that I wanted to eat. So a lot of farmers traveling the country for the Real Organic Project say that. They often say it didn't make sense when they were growing up on their parents' conventional farm that they wouldn't spray a section of their farm for them to eat. And why would they want to provide food to other people that they wouldn't want to eat themselves? And so for, I think, a lot of farmers, that's when it hits, is that, you know, why would I spray something on something that I'm about to put in my mouth? I want to be able to go outside and eat the food and walk among the plants and not worry about 
feeling like I was harming myself. Yeah, it's interesting. I talk to farmers at farmers markets, of course, and a lot of them tell me that they use the sprays because they think that consumers won't buy the produce if it isn't perfect. Mm, That is something we do need to overcome. And I think small diversified farms are actually better at not having any waste because when I pick, for example, there's probably 10% in most crops, there's 10% that I can't sell. And that goes into a separate box that I figure out how to sell to my neighbor who's canning or how to can myself. Mm -hmm. And so I think that organic farms and diversification and community come hand in hand with this concept of not wasting food too and figuring out not only how to educate consumers on maybe that one with the bite out of it tastes a little bit better, which is often true, but also what you can't see does harm you and that sometimes these imperfect fruit, are, they're more nutritious because they're grown to actually taste good, not to be shipped across the country too. So there's so many facets to why local organic farmers produce and choose what they choose to grow. This is such an interesting discussion. This is why as a dietitian who focuses on public health, why I love having a conversation with a farmer and especially one with expertise in plant pathology, because I too have read the study showing that crops that have a little bit of, maybe it's a plant, an imperfection, maybe it's a scale or a blemish of some sort that the plant itself is fighting, that the plant will produce more of the compounds that actually benefit our health. Have you seen research on that too? Well, I can talk a little bit about something called systemic acquired resistance that I did study when I was in the lab, and that's just the immune response that a plant has to either, you know, I was studying a fungal invasion, a plant pathogen invasion, but also to insects as well. And that does change the biology of the plants. And farmers, especially organic farmers, do talk about plants being under a little bit of stress Mm -hmm. and how that actually allows them to heal themselves from potential future invasions, but also for things just to taste a little bit better. But I also have a lot of experience with that. You know, even my daughter, my nine-year-old, can figure out that the strawberries that have an ant bite out of them that we tend not to sell because we like to eat those, but... They, they taste sweeter, and it's because they're allowed to ripen on the plant. And so how much nutrition are we losing because we are pulling stuff off of the plants when they're still firm and then allowing them to either ripen with ethylene or slowly just last longer on the shelves and ripen over time? But I, I really do think a plant that when you're harvesting that's completely ripe, it has more nutrition because it tastes better. There's something different. And there is research to back this up, that the longer a plant sits on the shelf, the more quickly it loses things like vitamin C. But there is so much we don't know, too. We can measure vitamin C, and that's very reductionist. But the fact that that happens means there's so much more happening, too, that we just don't know. Yeah. Isn't it fascinating? I'm glad you mentioned the reductionist piece, because I think we so often try to measure a plant's nutritional value by a few components that we're able to measure but we fail to study synergies and all of the different compounds that we'll never really fully understand. So it's so good to hear your perspective. And my job, and probably yours as well, together we have to help inform consumers that the crop that isn't perfect really is better for us. I know when I go to the farmer's market sometimes, I had a farmer apologize 
he said, you know, I've got some worms in the corn. And I said, this is good news to me, because if the worm can survive, that tells me that it isn't laced with poison that might hurt me as well. So it's just a different way of looking at it. Poison that tip of the corn, you just cut that part off and the rest tastes amazing. Exactly. That's how you know it's a real organic farmer, actually, if you find that lucky worm. Exactly. (laughs) The lucky worm. I love that. We need to move on to some really important points. You recently wrote a blog post for the Real Organic Project that really brought me in because you made the connection between soil and climate. And this is hard, I think, for those of us who haven't studied this field to truly understand. So soil is a carbon sink, is my understanding, as you explained in your blog, How is it that the organic farmer has the edge or the advantage in helping to mitigate climate change? Right. I think I mentioned in that blog, too, that there's more carbon in the soils than there is in the atmosphere and all the living things combined. So it's a huge carbon sink. And it has contributed to climate change because of our farming practices over the last hundred years. You know, we talk about those beautiful, fertile soils of the Midwest and how they used to have 15% organic matter. And now when we take measurements, we're looking at 5%. In just 100 years, we've lost 10% of the organic matter in these gorgeous fertile soils. And we need to be going the other direction. And we actually know how to go the other direction where we're actually increasing organic matter in the soils as we farm. And the surprising thing, and I know there's a lot of excitement around no-till, But we also know that if you grow a lot of biomass and cover cropping and work that into the top six inches of the soil, that that actually sequesters carbon too, that deep down in the soil, if we're not disturbing the deeper layers, that that's really where a lot of the stable carbon is held. And so when you actually encourage your roots to grow really deep, and we know that fertilizers do not, they put biomass in the above ground part, they do not encourage deep roots because those plants have no need to go searching for nutrients. It's right there provided for them. So the more biomass that we're actually, and I can even take a step back and talk about just the fact that the plants are photosynthesizing. Maybe the plant is using 75% of that, but 25% of that is actually going into the soil through the roots and feeding those microbes. And the deeper those roots are, the deeper that carbon can go and really be stored down. And this is something that's fairly new in soil science and that farmers are, they're listening because they're seeing that they can actually increase their yields over time and they can increase their, so, you know, maybe it's not, they're adding fertilizer and they'll see an immediate result the next year, but over 10 years, they've kind of lost that yield increase. And so now they're trying to figure out, okay, what do I do now that I've depleted my soils and adding more fertilizer isn't working? And adding more fertilizer is just making it so that my plants are more susceptible to insects. And so now I'm spraying more insecticide. And so I think a lot of the farmers are finally making these connections from 50 years of doing this. And so we need to be talking about and talking to the scientists and the researchers that are studying this stuff as well, and figuring out how can we reverse the damage that we've done over the last 50 years. And it seems that it's really doable. It's so interesting that the way our society is modeled, farmers are rewarded for quantity, not quality. And from a nutritionist lens, I wish that the farmers who were growing the most nutritious products for me and our community 
receive the greater rewards. How do we make that political shift away from always trying to get more, more, more? Because I think that's what feeds the drive for more fertilizers. Do you think, like, you understand it on a grassroots level, what's going on? Mm. And I think more yield is really a narrow way to look at it because if you actually look at the net cost of the additional chemicals that you'll need because of the overuse of fertilizer, that higher yield actually has a cost that doesn't actually balance out for the farmer either. So that's the exciting part about this is that farmers can be profitable over a lifetime and we need to be looking at the profitability of a farm over a lifetime instead of just from year to year. And that doesn't even include all of the other costs to society, the tragedy of the commons from the fertilizer that's running off into our waterways and, you know, all those ecosystem services that a healthy farm can provide for the community, the cost that the farms that aren't focusing on soil health, they're just overwhelming and and really hard to actually understand. So this is even beyond profitability for the individual farmer. This is for the commons. Right. And I think with so much emphasis on climate as it should be, in the public health world, climate change is seen as the number one global health threat. And I went to an interesting health conference where the presenter said, everybody thinks that climate change is something that happens to somebody else. But really, we are experiencing the harms from climate change every day, even though we might not be individually impacted. And I'm curious, from your perspective, as a farmer, I'm sure you've seen changes over time from the climate change impact. What have you been experiencing on your farm? We farm in southwest Colorado, which is considered a semi-desert. And so we are very aware of water. We did have an extremely wet year last year, but the year before that was extremely dry. And so we are having these really huge swings in water availability. And a lot of farmers, because land is very expensive, and out here you have to have water rights if you're going to be able to farm it, and a lot of the water rights are going to second homes and maybe waterfalls or ponds for developments. And so farmers are actually pushed where land is more affordable onto more marginal lands with water rights that might run out in August. And so one of the huge hurdles that we had to overcome is figuring out where we could farm. And it took us nine years to find farmland that we felt like it would be secure and actually had good water. But we're paying $100,000 an acre for this farmland because everywhere around us is developments with ponds for those water. So we're paving over our beautiful, the soils here are from the Animas River. And so they're floodplain soils, gorgeous fertile soils, and we're paving them over and the water rights aren't going to farmers. And on top of that, we're experiencing things like more hailstorms, too much water, so actually flooding or getting into the fields really late in the season, late frosts, early frosts, so shorter seasons. It's just so much more variable. So I think in traveling the country for the Real Organic Project, too, every farmer is experiencing these more extremes. It's not just us in the desert southwest. Every farmer is experiencing weather flukes just every year. Yeah. There are stories. Yeah. It's not this once-in-a-decade type story. It's, it's every year. Right. 
Well, let me take one break and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are joined by Dr. Lindley Dixon. She is the Associate Director of the Real Organic Project. She is also a farmer herself who also holds a PhD in plant pathology from the University of Florida. Her farm is based in Durango, Colorado, and she produces vegetables. Well, let me ask you, how many different crops do you grow and how many acres do you have to do it on? We have about five acres that we can have in production. We practice strip tillage on the pasture that was already there. So the ground is actually covered at all times. And we probably grow over 100 different varieties of 30 to 40 different crops any given year. So it's very diverse because we're a farmer's market and CSA-type farm. But what's been really surprising to me in terms of marketing, and it's wonderful to have so many different crops, but once you go beyond, we're becoming better growers, and we've got the farmer's market there, but when we want to try to get into the wholesale markets, it's been astonishing to me that we know people want to buy our food, but how difficult it is for people to actually have the opportunity to purchase it at the grocery store. And that's mm-hmm. a lot of what the Real Organic Project is trying to overcome, is that there are just these huge monopolies now that are even in the organic label. And so we're having trouble getting all of that diversity that we're able to sell direct market. We're having trouble getting that into the grocery store. Mm-hmm. And I think this is a place where dietitians can help educate consumers and help consumers be ambassadors for you and to go into supermarkets and ask specifically, I do want organic produce. I do want to protect my family and the planet, but I would like it to be organic and local. Would you agree with that message? What else can we bring to our local markets and ask for to benefit you? It's absolutely important that there's consumer demand at both restaurants and at grocery stores. What often happens at restaurants is there'll be local all over the menu, and the reality as a farmer, you know it's not happening. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's really important to start asking specifics. What farm are you supplying this local lettuce from? And so that there's some accountability. I do believe that local is as important as organic because of that variety that a local farmer can bring. So, for example, the reason why I decided I wanted to become a farmer was when I was about 10 years old, I'd try to sun gold tomato. Now, anybody who's shipping a cherry tomato across the country would never grow a sun gold tomato because it splits and it has this really thin skin, but it has the most amazing flavor. And so that's why local and organic is so important because we can harvest and get it on the shelf in the same day. Our farm is really close to our markets. And so the closer you can get, the more likely you're able to bring produce on a daily basis right to the shelves of the grocery store. But finding those grocery stores these days that are willing to work with you during the season have become more and more challenging. They are struggling to compete with each other and There is this vertical integration within the organic marketplace so that if you go to buy a tomato right now, oftentimes, even in your natural grocery stores, it is only provided by Wholesome Harvest. Hmm. There's really only one brand available if you go into your stores, oftentimes. Or if you go to find a berry, it's often only Driscoll's. And so that is what we're having to overcome as farmers and as eaters. People are losing access to the food that they want to buy. 
Mm-hmm. And you know, Lindley, the way I look at it is when we lose access to those unique foods that are regionally specific, we lose access to nutrients that we haven't even discovered yet. Do you know what I mean? I look at this food as preventive medicine. And if we limit ourselves to just a few varieties of something, we are limiting our preventive medical intake. And I think that we all lose, which is why I think the work that you're doing is so vitally important, not only for personal health, which is where a lot of consumers are focused, but to think beyond our plates and to realize that you're not only helping your local community, you're also benefiting the planet and you're helping to offset some of the risks that we see with climate change. What would you like to see from a policy perspective to make it easier for good farmers to do well? Mm. That's a tough one. I would love to see access to land Mm. somehow be made more easy. We do have a farm service agency loan for our land, but that only covered half. So if if we can't see that happen on the policy level, then communities need to get together and figure out how to get good farmers that are maybe renting land and losing their land goes up for sale or something like that. If it's not secure, figure out how to get those good farmers on permanent land. I would also like to see somehow the rules of organic actually being enforced. The incredible thing is that this requirement for soil health and soil fertility and carbon sequestration is all built into the organic laws currently. We're just not enforcing them. Hmm. And so I would love to see us just stick to the Organic Foods Production Act, actually require animals to be out on pasture require farmers to foster soil fertility on their farms. And that is not actually taking any change in policy. It's actually just enforcement of the current law that we already have. Who would do that enforcement? Like, how do you see that taking place? Would that be the role of perhaps the organic certifier or inspector? How does this work? So the organic inspectors are supposed to all be enforcing the same rules. And what's happened is that the requirement for outdoor access for livestock in the law has been interpreted differently by some inspectors because there's a financial interest to certify some of these large operations. So what's happened is, for example, in chickens, you can have these 2 million birds in these 10 back-to-back buildings, and the outdoor access is a screened-in porch. Hmm. And one certifier will interpret that as being outdoor access, whereas other certifiers have said what the intent of the law was that outdoor access actually wasn't a screened-in porch, it was access to the dirt and to allow a chicken to be a chicken and eat the bugs in the soil and take dust baths and all the things that chickens do. So some certifiers are enforcing the law, other certifiers are enforcing it differently, and it's the job of the National Organic Program to oversee those certifiers and make sure there's universal enforcement of the law. And unfortunately, that has been lacking as well. So I think farmers need to put pressure on their own certifiers or change certification agencies even to the ones that are enforcing the rules the way we all meant them to be. That's kind of the grassroots level of creating change. But I would also love to see from the top-down enforcement from the National Organic Program within the USDA. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm assuming that if there are farmers listening or consumers who want more information, they can go to realorganicproject.org 
and learn more about these issues and how maybe they can become more involved? The wonderful thing about the Real Organic Project is that it is farmer-led and it's a grassroots effort. So if you go to the realorganicproject.org, you can click on the section that says Know Your Farmer Videos, and you'll hear directly from the farmers across the country that many of whom started the organic movement or are new farmers that are inspired by the people that came before us. And the incredible thing about the organic movement is that it was founded by smaller family farmers, and those are still the majority of the farmers that are under the organic seal, so it is worth protecting. The problem is that we're losing that product on the shelves coming from those farmers, and those farmers have access to the product on the shelf. I want to just comment about those videos because I love them, and I think the more people can connect with a farmer and understand what it's like to farm and produce really good food, the kind of food that I would certainly want to put in the mouths of of the nation, I think that then they get a better message than if they're just receiving the narrative that's created by the corporate food system, which often has misinformation and false narratives that really just go to generate the sales of those fertilizers that you mentioned earlier, or some of those chemicals, you know, the idea that the food has to be perfect, or that we have to be able to have these chemicals in order to produce enough food for the world to eat. But then you listen to the farmer's side, and it's like, they've got an abundance. And they find that they get an abundance by not using chemicals and by keeping the soil healthier. I think those are really important messages, not to hear from me, but to hear directly from the farmer. That's what's so inspirational about this movement is that it's it's so many voices and there are so many stories to be told. And it's actually educating other farmers in the process in addition to the consumers. And so we're really opening the doors to the farm. And, and the Real Organic Project is taking you on the farm, letting you meet the farmer. And then in the end, when you see the Real Organic Project label, because we are creating a label so that you can actually differentiate the soil-grown and uh, pasture-raised products on the shelf, you'll know exactly where that product came from. We really want to... So many labels will show the picture of the picturesque family farm and the cows on pasture, and the reality is that they're in confinement being fed grain. And so it's, it's so important to us that consumers are actually buying what they think they're buying. Well, unfortunately, our time is nearly up. I'm going to give you one minute to give our listeners a charge if you have anything else that you'd like to say. Please educate yourself on the importance of soil health and support the farmers in your community who are keeping their soils covered. It used to be that if you drove by a bare field, your neighbor would get mad at you if there was one weed And now we know that keeping the soil covered over the winter is actually going to be help mitigate climate change. So if you can support the farmers that are really paying attention to soil health and can have these complex conversations about what they're doing on the farm to help mitigate climate change, those are the farmers we want to see continue to do what they're doing, and so please support them. That's great. All right. In closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn 
at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Lindley Dixon, Associate Director of The Real Organic Project. She is a farmer with a PhD in plant pathology. And to learn more about The Real Organic Project, simply go to www.realorganicproject.org. Dr. Dixon, thank you so much for being my guest. Thank you, Melinda.